Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. And to think there are people out there who still say the Premier League isn't the greatest league in the world. I'm Dan Burke, this is the Premier League Weekend Review Podcast, and to somehow attempt to analyse one of the maddest weekends in living memory, I'm joined once again by Matt Froelich and Joel Sanderson-Murray. Hello. So after the results your respected teams had this weekend, I simply had to get you both on the podcast again this week. I know you're particularly excited to talk about Liverpool, Joel. Uh, I couldn't for the life of me decide where to start the show, though. So what I did, I wrote down all the matches on pieces of paper, stuck them to my dartboard and threw a dart with my eyes closed. So we'll start to at Molyneux, where Wolves narrowly overcame Fulham on Sunday. No, just kidding. We will, of course, start at Villa Park where Premier League champions Liverpool were subjected to a 7-2 shellacking by Aston Villa. 7-2. Joel, what the hell happened to your boys? Was the grass really that long at Villa Park? <laughs> it's a fair point. So, yeah. <laughs> That's what it's all down to. I've tried to sort of come to peace with it and um, analyse it and, and try and find out what the fuck happened. But <laughs> I, I still can't really come to an answer. I think it was just one of them that was just, it was just dead funny. Like, at the end of it, like, I, I was out with a friend who uh, watched it in the bar and... Um, they they left at five two uh, because they just couldn't they'd, they'd seen enough I guess. Yeah. Um, I I stood there till the end with a, with a pint by myself staring into the abyss, <laughs> um, getting all my posts forwarded to the abyss. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was I I I think that there are a few things. This sorry to go off on a bit of a tangent on it, but I I think there's been a bit of a complacency around Liverpool. Since, maybe even going back to February, I I think back to. The Wofford game where Liverpool lost three 0 and it ended all on beating hopes and all that kind of thing. I, I think Liverpool just got that, that used to winning. It just became a bit too mm. easy for them, which sounds mad to say. But then the stats back it up. You know they'd won twenty eight out, of, sorry twenty six out of twenty eight um, before lockdown, and, and obviously they have a bit of a poor form after lockdown. But they put that down to you know just won the league, um, and you know they take the foot off the gas a bit. The maybe, and I guess we'll we'll see over the coming weeks when football comes back after the international break, um, whether this is a trend or whether this is, you know, just a, just a bit of a one-off. I, I think it could be a good thing for them in, in a way because there's nothing like getting twatted seven two to uh, <laughs> make you reset and have a little think on that. But I think there's something on this that maybe we're all. I think that affects the whole Premier League. It's how much of the Sunday league uh, football has become now with no fans in the stadium mm. and the situation that we, we found ourselves in? Because, you know, I, I, I kind of think when you're in a game like this, you, you can turn it around by the mood of the crowd. So when, when Aston Villa go 3-1, I, I, I knew then that Liverpool weren't going to get back into this. It, it just wasn't going to happen. Villa were, can't take it away, Villa were absolutely incredible. Their game plan worked to perfection. I've not seen a team press and bully um, on midfield like that. And I've not seen anyone make fools of Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez like that, you know, for, for seasons. But their crowd maybe would have got, I would be bouncing and would have got nervous mm. uh, in this situation. And without, and I think we're seeing this with the, just bizarre results we we found even before this. Like this is the craziest of crazy. But my head lost six one at home the <laughs> game before this. Man City lost five two to Leicester like the week before. Like I think this is just this is just going to happen this season now because you, you've also what you what have you got if, if a game is lost the players will feel that on the pitch now. 
usually if they're at home or they you know they can hear their away crowd and you know fighting them on if they are buoyant, they'll they'll get an extra ten percent of energy or an extra boost from that kind of thing and they can find themselves to get back in it. But they haven't got that now, so it's very hard to turn the tide. Mm. Where you know all, all you're hearing is the whistle of the crowd or like some someone's dog outside the stadium. You know what I mean? It's not like there's nothing to say. I think that's that's just it's just gonna happen. And this is probably the worst result we're gonna see. This is the, the wildest results. And I can't really just believe what's just happened. It's still fucking mental. <laughs> well, I was gonna ask this a bit later in the show, but I guess now's a better time to ask it. Um, you know, like you mentioned, we've seen Leicester five, City two last weekend, Spurs six, Man United one, now Villa seven, Liverpool two. <laughs> Are these freak results sort of symptomatic of the unprecedented times we're living in, Matt? The lack of pre season, the lack of fans. Should we be reading too much into anyone's early season? Informed, do you think? I actually, um, I actually agree with Joel. To be honest, um, I really think that when you're out there, and I think Luke Shaw summed it up in the United Spurs game. He said he felt embarrassed mm. to be out there, right? And when you're feeling embarrassed as a player, or you're feeling a bit down, or you've got a bad touch, you know, the fans sort of push you on a bit, or you get a bit of a lift, or it can be one thing. You know, you can. I always remember. Um, there was the a video of Andy Robertson where he 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 was tracking tracking down he um he was closing down the man Andy Robertson and then the next man and then the next one the next one he went to the goalkeeper and he ran about sixty yards across yeah. the pitch and every time he closed another person down the crowd got a bit more hyped and he did it again and again and again and the buzz he would have got off that would have sent Robertson whatever he did in the game before through the roof confidence wise and I think Joel makes an excellent point that when you know, when all you can hear, especially when you're at home, right, you look around and you're 3-1, you're 4-1 down at home like Manchester United were, and you want the crowd to lift you. But instead, all you can see is the Spurs players in your face. So you can just hear how confident they are. They hear, You can hear them trash talking. You can't look elsewhere for the crowd to lift you. You can't... It, it almost sounds like you're in an empty room. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're the if you're the captain who says, come on, boys, let's go, and the crowd's behind you, and it means something. If you shout that and then just silence, you're like, well, hold on. Is anyone with me? Did the other guys hear me? You know, it, it, it can feel like a lonely place when you're in a 70,000-seater stadium with no one else around. It, it's, it's exactly that. It's, it's, a, it's a motivational thing. I mean, you think back to sort of like Champions League semifinals where – the oh the home team of one nil up, defending their one one nil lead and getting to the eighty fifth minute, the nerves within that stadium mm. play a factor, and the away team can get a, you know an effect from that, and and, and suddenly momentum can start to turn, and, and I think we are going to see now, and it's still early days, so you know we're not sure how much effect it has, but we're going to see how much effect the fans have on football now. And I, I, think, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see. I don't think we can use last season, the end of last season in this, because obviously we've played, everyone's played eight games with no fans in the stadium, but the season had, was that far involved and you know it was all still trying to get weird, getting used to it. it was, I don't think it was that much of a factor then. We didn't see these results then, did we? We didn't see these type of results, not that yeah. often anyway. But now the new season started and, and I think Dan made you know, the point there of the lack of pre-season it's just all become very Sunday league. Mm. Uh, we're going to see the lads miss games for two weeks because of, because of, because of COVID. That, that's going to come into it, which is, 
it's, it's just going to be weird. It's just it's going to be a weird season. <laughs> well, that, that's. Um, I mean, I, I've been sort of thinking about uh, the lack of pre-season and whether you know, if if Liverpool lost seven two at the International Champions Cup, you wouldn't really think anything of it, would you? Because it's a pre-season <laughs> game and everyone's a bit rusty at that time, and everyone's a bit all over the place, and it just happens that kind of thing. Whereas it, when it happens during the season, you think, oh my god, what's gone wrong here? And also, I think early season results are put there's greater significance put on them than there are results in the middle of the season. You know, look at Man City's results so far. They beat Wolves, they lost to Leicester, they drew with Leeds. If that happened in, um, you know, uh, January, February, those three results in a row, you would say, oh, this is sort of normal form, really. But because it's the first, the first three games of the season, it's like, oh, we're going to be fucking battling relegation now or something. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of stock being put in these results, and I'm not, I'm not sure how much stock we should really be putting in them. Uh, but getting back to Liverpool's performance, I mean, I've seen a lot of of uh, made of their their high line being exposed in this game. Do you think that was the case? And if so, why is it only happening to them now? You know, it's been two years of, of amazing performances and now suddenly the, the, the high line is a problem. Um, I, I don't think... It's easy to say this because they just lost 7-2. I don't think it is a problem. Um, I, I, I just... Because you, you made the point there, they've won the, won the league and won the Champions League the last two seasons with playing a high line. Now, I, I don't think it's as high as it has become this so far this season. I do think they have maybe pushed five or ten yards further up. Um, I think that's something that's been worked on in training, but over time we'll we'll see whether it, it is an effect or not. Um, but no, I don't I don't think Aston Villa won 70 because of their high line, because of Liverpool's high line on, on Sunday. Because there wasn't... You know, there were a couple of one-on-one chances. Adjam was actually perfectly good at one-on-one chances. He made a great save from Grealish in the second half. But it wasn't like they, they knocked the ball over the top, you know, a thousand times and the runner was on. There was something systematically wrong with, with what was in front of the defence. The defence mm-hmm. didn't play that well at all. Gomez was horrendous, uh, for example. And Trent got, you know, wasn't great. Um, but the pressing just wasn't good from, from the front um, on, on Sunday, you know. We can all, you know, it's easy to point fingers at the high line because that's just the the easiest go to. But you know, this high line's won Liverpool what they've won over the last two seasons. Mm. It just maybe needs a bit of tweaking now because I think they're trying to move forward uh, and play a bit higher up because you want to put more pressure on teams. It was worked fantastically well against Arsenal um, the game before. You saw how high we were pressing. I, I just think it was a systematic thing on on um, on Sunday. I couldn't name you anything that the midfield did. Um, hmm. I, I don't think Kite, I think Sat came out that Naby Kaita did not make a tackle all game uh, and made one interception. I think that's maybe telling. Um, I think Diogo Jota had a great game, but I, I also noticed how far wide he was playing. Um, every, every time the ball came to him, he was else with, with, um, with White on his boots, he was placed on, on the byline every hmm. time. But I think the thing is, when Sadio Mani plays there, Sadio Mani is basically. A third striker, Salah, Firmino, and Manny, they all play very tight to almost like a defence in how narrow they are we're together. Jota just wasn't that. Obviously, he's new. It was his first start for the club in the Premier League. Um, he's obviously just not used to the way we play yet. And I think that's a factor as well because Villa could break away easy because the space was there. I don't necessarily, this, this wasn't necessarily down to the high line, I don't think. Mm. It's interesting what you say about the midfield, though, because that is exactly what went wrong for City last season and is still going wrong <laughs> this season. <laughs> so it's interesting that Liverpool kind of seems to be suffering the same problem. I mean, after City's defeat to Leicester last week and now this, I was thinking, Matt, like, could it be that that pressing high up the pitch is, is kind of a trend in football that teams are working out how to play against? Uh, you know, you saw like the death of Tiki Taka a few years ago. Could it be the death of the high press? I'm- 
I don't think it's necessarily the death of the high press. I just think Liverpool weren't doing it as a unit. That's what you have to remember. The the high press is all well and good, right, from the defence to stand on the halfway line if the midfield isn't then letting John McGinn turn and play 40-yard balls over the top. Because there's no point. There's no point in the team in the defence running up if the midfield aren't then going to stop the long ball over the top. The whole point is that you make the pitch as small as possible, that the Liverpool midfield stop, um, can push up and stop the Aston Villa, Aston Villa midfield turning, getting on the ball, playing the balls through, and you're effectively just squeezing to the point where they just smash it long and the likes of Van Dijk can deal with it. And I think it was really fragmented from the midfield to the attack. And I think, again, maybe you know it is the first 45 minutes or first 90 minutes for Jota uh, in the Premier League shirt for Liverpool. Um and he didn't quite understand the system, or you could say that Cater and the, the sort of makeshift midfield wasn't quite on it. For whatever reason, they just weren't doing it as a team. And I think that presents Klopp with more problems, but also something to work on. Because when the press works, it looks absolutely brilliant. I mean, I know we're going to get onto Tottenham shortly. <laughs> um, but, you know, it looked absolutely fine. And I, I just think that there was really something, it looked like... It just looked like they weren't quite aware of what they were doing within regards to the bigger picture of how the team were meant to be playing. You know, you can win your one-on-ones and this and that and the other, but when you're not playing as a team or as a unit altogether, it just looks so amateurish. And I think that was the problem. There were times that the perfect, perfect example was Grealish's goal. Was it the seventh, the last goal? McGinn yes. yeah. turned about two people too easily. Far too easily, right? He turned, the game was open up, and he hit a ball into a load of space beyond Chen Alexander Arnold, who also missed the ball. Um, and then Grealish ran through and scored. That high press looks absolutely fine if you keep McGinn in that corner and the midfield do their job. But if you don't, then of course it's going to be exposed. And I just think there was such a sort of, yeah, a, la- a lack of a. a lack of togetherness th- throughout the units of, of, of the team. And that really kind of. it's so easy to expose then as they did mm. are you concerned Joel about any Liverpool players on a sort of individual level um you know I'm thinking maybe even Virgil van Dijk you know there's a few mistakes creeping into his game is it time to get rid <laughs> <laughs> what a question <laughs> get him sold um maybe we need to bring some out license do some defensive coaching and I'll come to that um no I'm <sighs> I, I can't sit here after my team just got beat 7-2 and say I'm not concerned in, in at all. Um, but I do think maybe it is just a little bump in the road. But, uh, you know, as I was sort of alluded to before about maybe complacency maybe stepping in, uh, I, th- I think I think that's been the case because of how good they've been. I think that's maybe been the case of a lot of the players, including Van Dijk. I think Van Dijk in the past has looked offended every time he tried to, he's been forced to do any defending. Um, because, because he's never had to do that much, to be honest, since he's, since he's arrived, because mm. he's been that good down the other end. And, and I think maybe they just, they need to be, Brought down to earth a little bit, which which a seven two fashion should do, um, and maybe it just needs to be a bit, needs to be a bit more humble. I think that's what we need to see because the worst thing about Sunday was was it's not something we've seen at all with with Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp. The attitude just wasn't there after they were getting beat. They did believe they can get back into it because they, they were insisting on attacking uh, and insisting on and going forward, and and they looked confident enough to keep trying to do moves, but. 
they just didn't. They, uh, I can't quite put my finger on it. They just didn't look as motivated as they usually usually do. And I guess because they've already climbed to Everest, they've already got to the top, and and now it's kind of like, well, what, where do you go from here? But this is now that the job of Klopp and, and his management staff have to do is is to get them motivated again. And, and you know. We'll have to see when you come back. There's nothing like a Merseyside derby to, uh, <laughs> to get you back on the level. I mean, maybe they're even looking at uh, you know the way City are playing and subconsciously thinking, well, we don't need to be at our best every week to yeah. win the league this year. Maybe I, that's sort of crept in a little bit. I, I think you're absolutely spot on there, to be honest mm. with you, because obviously, as I said last week on the podcast, I, I've been under the illusion of the last two seasons, three seasons, that we need to get to 100 points to beat City to the league. Mm. And obviously City started the way they did and Obviously, the lead the Leeds game happened before Villa, so the City have already dropped what four points. Yeah, um, and you're like, yeah, I, I absolutely could could see that Liverpool probably thinking, okay, maybe we need to get to eighty five to win the league. Mm. You know what? We're probably in a situation where Liverpool City will still win the league, I think, but the team who wins it will probably only get 85 points to win it because it's going to be that wild. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about Aston Villa, though. I mean, they've had a great transfer window. Dean Smith's been doing a fabulous job so far this season. Do you think they've genuinely turned a corner, Matt? Uh, I actually think they do. And, and normally I'm not so um, I'm normally not so friendly towards the newly promoted teams, especially when they go and spend a lot of money or the, the second season teams. But I, I really think they have, and they've added some real quality. I think Ross Barkley... Ross Barkley's absolutely fine playing for Chelsea. I don't think he looks out of place at Chelsea. I don't mm. think he gets into the first team. But I don't think he looks out of place. And they're a Champions League side. So him going into the team that finished 17th is a massive upgrade. Hanging on to Jack Grealish for me is the biggest piece of business Aston Villa have done. Um, and signing him to a new deal uh, on top of this yeah. as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really think they've turned the corner. They seem to have ridden their luck at stages last year. They spent a lot of money. They didn't have the quality. I think Grealish was the guy that literally kept them up. They stayed up by a point. Um, and now they've sort of pushed on, which is a good, it's a good plan. You know, they haven't just sort of rested and thought, you know what, we're, we're going to be better just because we are. You know, they've really made some good signings. And I think the, the I always say with the promoted teams that you either stick with the guys that got you there and you know you reward them and you trust them and you're you're faithful to them or you realistically say we need to be better and once you stay up you know by the skin of your teeth by one point Dean Smith says we need to be better I know the players who have got us here and I know this and that and you know they were with me in the championship and they remember the old days but screw that that's not going to keep you up in a division Mm. or help you push on and I'm just I'm really impressed by, by the level of quality they've brought in yeah, I mean, a lot of people scoffed at that Ross Barkley signing, but I thought it was a really good one at the time. Um, yeah, like you said, Jack Grealish is, is playing out of his skin at the moment. John McGinney-Esther having a great time, isn't he? <laughs> and uh, of course, a great hat-trick from Ollie Watkins, who he probably could have had yeah. five, actually. I mean, he, they spent £28 million on him in the summer. A lot of people turned their nose up at that, but he looks like he's worth the money, doesn't he, Matt? Um, yeah, based off the performance, yes. <laughs> I was one who turned my nose up. I thought he had a great season with Brentford. Um you know, there's there's not too many players who come up and, you know, for a big fee like that and hit the ground running. Um, I would point at Timo Pukki's fantastic start last season for Norwich. Mm. And then I think he didn't score for the rest of the season after scoring five or six. Um, so, yeah, you, you kind of got to wait and see. As the scoring 
a hat-trick against the champions in the first half, of course, you know, he's the guy at the moment. And I think he looks worth it at the moment. But more than just creating, you know, brilliant hat-tricks and winning 7-2 against Liverpool, you know, at the end of the season, if Liverpool are champions and Aston Villa are relegated and Watkins hasn't scored many more, then, you know, it, it tells a different yeah. story. So I, I think it'd be too early to judge, regardless of the fact that, obviously, that's a fantastic sign that he can score a hat-trick against, against Liverpool. Uh, well, I chose a perfect weekend to finally invest in a British VPN, and one day I'll be able to tell my grandchildren that I once watched an episode of Match of the Day where Manchester United won, Tottenham 6 was only second on the running order. <laughs> um, I think the best way to discuss this game is by going through it chronologically. So, Matt, how were you feeling when Spurs went 1-0 down to a penalty after 40 seconds? Um, you, you mentioned it. I didn't invest in a VPN and spent too much time pissing around trying to get a link ready that I missed the first goal. <laughs> we were honestly... I, I do not know a Spurs fan, from my friends, my family, Twitter, anyone who didn't say, who, who, who wasn't saying there won't be a penalty. Mm. Everybody, everybody said Spurs away at Old Trafford, penalty, Fernandez, And I just thought, <laughs> you've got to be joking me. 30 seconds in. It was like, I mean, I, I, was, I was talking about it the other day. It's like... The Premier League hired one of the WWE script writers for this season <laughs> and just went, you know what? Things are going to go mad and The Rock's going to run down the tunnel at halftime. By God, that's Mike Dean's music. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So he's just going to come and lay the smack down on someone. I just think it's almost like a sort of over-elaborate theatre production. You go, you know what would be funny? If Spurs give away a penalty first minute, then win 6-1. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. for the crowd. Like, it's just, I just thought, here we go again. After such a positive week for Spurs, mm. um, aside from the Newcastle handball, uh, see last week's episode for that. Um, <laughs> aside from that, you know, beating Chelsea in the League Cup and penalties, smashing Haifa to qualify for the Europa League group stage, some good signings. I thought it was a really good week for Spurs and just thought, typical Tottenham, 30 seconds in, just for God's sakes. <laughs> well, the lead lasted just two minutes for United. Tangi and Dombele scored the equaliser. He seems yeah. to have really turned his Spurs career around. Do you think uh, old Jose Mourinho deserves a bit of credit for that, for having him doing shuttle runs in the park and all that during the lockdown? <laughs> uh, I, I think so, yeah. And I think, I think only a Mourinho kind of character draws it out of him. Um, I think... Dombele, there was rumours that you know he was going to be part of a swap deal with Inter Milan, or he wanted to leave, or Barcelona were looking at him, this, that, and the other. I think you kind of need, you don't need an arm around you to say, "Don't worry, mate, things are going to get better." It's almost um, the Mourinho style of saying, "This is the other position you're in. If, if you want to be here, you've got to work hard." Now get out of my office and come back and tell me when you've worked hard. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't. And Dombele didn't need to be told, oh, you can be really good, mate. Just, you know, just do this and do that. He needed the sort of ultimatum of you get fit and you're in the team. And I think I think he's more aware now of the fact that he's part of a squad. He's more aware that he's got a fight in training for a starting position. He's more aware of where he fits into the side. Because last season, when you're coming in as the record signing, you assume you've made it already. You know, you're the record signing, you're the big name, you're this, you're that, you're, you know, the fans demand to see you because you've spent 60 million on him. So you'll be in the team every week, mate. Pochettino loves you. He wants you here. Hmm. It's not like that anymore. You know, to Jose Mourinho, who didn't sign in Dombele, 
He's just another player that he's inherited when he's walked into Tottenham and he's got to show him all over again that he's the man to be picked because he's Mourinho owes him nothing. Mourinho didn't ask yeah. him to come. Mourinho didn't bring him in from Lyon. So, you know, if he says, I don't like you, Tangy, he's got to get on with it. So I think that kind of almost ultimatum has really given him a kick up the arse. Yeah. I mean, that that's equalising goal. I think it's fair to say United's defence had a shocker on it. The uh, it's, a, it's a weird header from Eric Bailly, then uh, Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw doing the best Laurel and Hardy impression. In fact, Maguire seemed to drag Shaw to the floor when he had the chance to clear it, which is one of the funniest things I've seen on a football pitch for a while. Uh, Joel, do you think it's time for United fans to start seriously worrying about Maguire and was it a mistake to make him captain? Uh, he's, he's probably... Out of that team, and I think it says more about the team than does about Maguire, is that he's probably the most standout captain. Maybe maybe throw David De Gea in there, but you know he's a goalkeeper. Goalkeeper should never be captains. Um, I, I, but he's probably the one who he looks to me as the most captain-like in that team. Um, I think that just says they, they, they lack a lot of leaders in there. But I think it is time to start getting seriously worried about him. Um, you know, let's forget his fee for a second because fees are crazy in this time anyway, but... Obviously, he comes into Man United to solve their defensive issues and, and you know, become the next Rio Ferdinand, the Man United, whatever. And he's just, he's never looked to me at any stage at Man United like a Man United defender should do. Like, he's never looked like a title winning defender. He's never looked on the level of Virgil van Dijk, for example. Um, he's just always looked like, you know what, Leicester City, top eight, eighth place in the table, maybe, let's say. Probably his level, probably mm. as high as it gets. He has a very good World Cup, and I think that's why Man United spend the money they do on him, I guess, and bring him in. Um, I just think that the issue of him is is maybe the way they play, where they do have, you know, they, they do leave a lot of space behind, where he's got to do a lot of running to, to get back into position, and I just don't think he's the quickest. Mm. Um, I think that's maybe where he has a bit of an issue, but it's he makes his, his centre half part, his partner look bad as well. Like, but he's probably the best defender at that club. He's, he has injury issues, and that's where you know, that's where his, him getting into the team comes from. The problem gets comes from. Um, but he he always makes Bayer look bad, and I think Maguire's the issue there. There's a lot of memes to go around every time Maguire plays, and I think sometimes that's a bit harsh. But you know, he's not seen the crime but far too much now, and. Hmm, I think this is going to be a bit of a funny issue now for, for everyone else anyway. Yeah, I mean, of course City were also linked with Maguire when, when United signed him and with every passing week it gets more and more baffling what Guardiola yeah. saw in him to think that he'd, he'd be the sort of player that City would, would want. And anyway. Guardiola's record of buying centre-offs is fantastic though, so... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it was the fourth goal there was a, a rarely spotted uh, double nutmeg as well, which I enjoyed. Um, but, you know, the United's defence weren't the only ones who a shocker on Sunday. I had a bit of a shocker as well, in that as well as missing most of the Liverpool game because I didn't think it'd be, t- be, be particularly interesting. I also missed the first 12 minutes at Old Trafford and when I turned it on, it was already 2-1, courtesy <laughs> of a lovely goal from Son. What happened to Son's hamstring injury, Matt? <laughs> I think, think mind game Mourinho is back. Ooh. I think Jose really had United on strings for that one. Um, I think he, he did obviously have a bit of a, a hamstring worry after the Newcastle game. But yeah, he obviously was a bit fit. I think he said after the game that he wasn't 100% wanted to help the team. Um, obviously, with an international break coming up, you know, maybe maybe he could get through however much he got through with 60-odd minutes of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was able to get through that and then take the few weeks off to recover. 
But yeah, Mourinho even said he didn't expect him to be back till after the international break. So I can only draw the conclusion that Mourinho and his old, his old trickery and his mind games are <laughs> back in full swing. <laughs> Which I am all here for. <laughs> Absolutely, that's the WWE plot twist that this season yeah, definitely needed, it. isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's Mourinho and Vince McMahon scheming. <laughs> um, perhaps the, the big turning point in this match well definitely the big turning point in this match was when Anthony Marshall was sent off for lashing out with Eric Lamela surely that should have been two red cards or no red cards though right Joel because Lamela kind of started it and then went down a bit easily yeah 100% there should have been two red cards um, if, if, if anything it both players definitely should have seen some kind of retribution, I guess, because it maybe maybe two yellow cards. I think maybe red cards were harsh. Because I mean, I know the rule is if you raise your hand to a player, you obviously make connection. It's an automatic red card, but it's making connection with the face that apparently is the, yes. is the rule, and the, the, and the fact that Lamella didn't make contact with his face means it wasn't as serious as Marshall's, which is just bizarre, isn't it? Really? It's just the shades of grey on this because Marshall clips him at best. It, it's not a full whack. I mean, and, and the thing is Lamella, which I know some people enjoy, maybe Matt as well will enjoy this. That Lamella sort of waits for a couple of seconds and then it kind of sort of like a light bulb goes off his head where he goes, oh, if I go down here, I can get him sent off. So I'm just going to go down. Okay. Um, but it's, it was, it was, I think it was really harsh on Martial. And, and yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it was too, too red cards. To if, if you're going to send Martial off, you should send Lamella off as well because he's done the dirty work really. He's, he's initiated it. Yeah, but that's it, you know. Uh, fair play to Anthony Taylor. I criticise him in the past because he's from Manchester and seems to love giving United things, but this time he really came through for us. <laughs> well, incidents like that one make me re- uh, really make me think we need like a sin bin or an orange card or something like that because like Lamella's very cheeky there. Marshall yeah. shouldn't have reacted like that, but is it serious enough to remove a player from the match for something like that for the whole game? It just kind of spoils the game, I think. I, I, I think that as well. I just think you should have a little box in the corner where if you're pissed off, you two could just scrap for them. <laughs> like hockey. Yeah, game. like yeah. ice hockey. <laughs> it's, it's got what they're doing to each other. It's got nothing to do with the match. If you're, if you're seriously endangering someone's footballing ability by breaking a leg or you're bringing someone down as a last man and it's got an impact on the game, fine. If you two just want to slap each other about for a bit in the stand, go on, have your fun and come back when you're ready to play football. It just it's, just, it's just got nothing to do with the game. So, yeah, why not have a sin bin or, you know, just say, you two break it up. You're both being idiots, right? We both want to see this game. Um, so just cool off for two minutes and then come back in. But, yeah, I agree with Joel. If if, if it's a red for one, it's a red for the other if you're yeah. both pissed about being idiots. I mean, they're both stupid. Lamella, Lamella's an idiot for doing it in the first place, but knew what he was doing. And Martial, you know, used to know better to react, to yeah. not react like that. If there's one challenge that deserved a red in that game, it was Luke Shaw. Uh, oh, was, it, was, outrageous. was it Lucas Mora that he hacked down yeah. when he just yeah, ran yeah. away from it? It's like when you're on FIFA and you're just sort of frustrated, isn't it? And you, uh, yeah, it, it looked worse for Shaw because it looked like it was just, it was the ultimate embarrassment. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I've given up. I know that I'm too slow to catch this guy, so I'm just going to hack him down. He just looked, he looked like a bum. Like, what a loser. <laughs> hey, we've all been in our position playing Sunday League. We? <laughs> we just cannot be arsed, track him back. So, yeah. Yeah. Let's kick him. <laughs> 
so it was 4-1 at half time and then my personal favourite goal of the game came six minutes into the second half when Pierre-Emile Huyberg uh, played in Serge Aurier with a beautiful one-touch through ball. Um, talk to me about those two, Matt. How impressed have you been with Hoiberg so far and do you think Aurier's performance here was a perfect response to the signing of Matt Doherty this summer? I think that was an outrageous pass. It was amazing. Something, yeah. it, 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 was almost, it was almost like that's not quite what he was bought in for. Yeah. That's like a Tangi and Dombele pass. I mean, Hoiberg's there to break up the play, win the tackles and just give it simple. <laughs> but if he could do that, I'm all for it. Uh, or phenomenal pass. Absolutely ridiculous. Again, I, I don't want to you know talk smack too much, but Luke Shaw was woeful. <laughs> Utterly one of the worst defensive performances I've ever seen. Every time the ball went out to the right and Sergio Aurea was in all sorts of space, I kept thinking, where on earth is Shaw? What is, where was he? I mean, for for every goal, I mean, the fact that Aurier got a goal and an assist tells you a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was shocking. But Hoybier was brilliant. Um, I think it was the most passes by an away player at Old Trafford. Oh, really? Ever, wow. Ever with, I think it was 100 or 98. Wow. Um, which was insane. I think he was so good at breaking up the play, stopping the attacks. He, uh, I know, linked back to what we spoke about earlier, he was the perfect um Perfect player to sit in front of a high line because the ball, he pressed so well that United didn't have the chance to turn and play this long ball, you know, the, the kind of long ball that outdid uh, Liverpool. And I think that's why he was so key to that performance, um, you know, uh, away from the headline grabbers. But Serge Aurier, yeah, brilliant. He's a different player to Doherty. I think Aurier is very aggressive going forward. And a lot more sort of, um, he's he's always sort of looking to attack, but he's also acutely aware of the fact that he is at a right back position. Whereas I think Doherty seems to be far better in a right wing back position, um, because Aurier defensively as well puts in a great shift too. And I think we've seen you know in the first few weeks of the season, Doherty has got forward so well. He's a very sort of clever player. He makes a, an interesting run inside. Um, gets involved in the attack without too much regard for what's behind him. And I think that Serge Aurier is sort of doing the whole of the right side, I guess. And it's, you could draw the line and say, oh, he's got better because Doherty's in. But I didn't see anything too dissimilar to what Aurier normally does. It was just he cut out the mistakes, I guess. Yeah. I thought uh, Sergio Regulon was really good on his debut as well, even when he moved into midfield when Ben Davies came on. Uh, of course, there's still Gareth Bale to come after the international break. You've got uh, Carlos Vinicius on loan from Benfica. I've had a question via email from Ibrahim Hashim, who, has, who asks, have Tottenham had a better window than Chelsea? Matt? Well, again, like we said earlier, you kind of got to see after a few months at the end of the season. It's very difficult to call it now, especially when you think that Chelsea... Um, have had one or two poor results and then you compare it to Tottenham winning 6-1 at United. It's easier to say Tottenham now. Mm. Um, but I think overall they've both had stunning windows. I mean, if you're going to compare, I don't know, if you're going to compare Bale to Havertz, Havertz will probably be tearing out for Chelsea over the next six, seven, eight years. Um, Bale's on a one-year loan and he's very injury-prone. Um if there's a few other players, you know, Chilwell and Reguilon, I think are both going to be good signings for their team. So I think it's, it would be difficult to say either way. I'm going to pitch for Spurs, obviously. 
um, because the thought of Gareth Bale having that much space when Luke Shaw won't walk about <laughs> could have been worse for United. If it <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get into United's woes now then. Um, Joel, how much of this is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's fault? How much of it is down to Ed Woodward and the club's entire infrastructure? Of course, the transfer window closed yesterday. They have signed a few players on deadline day, Edison Cavani being the, the big name. But, um, but yeah, is Solskjaer, should he bear more of the blame than perhaps he's getting? I think he is getting away a lot of, um, without receiving a lot of scrutiny and criticism. Uh, maybe that's down to yeah, so a lot of United friends in the media, let's say, mm. uh, ex-teammates, for example. Um, which, you know, so that, that's bearing some of the scrutiny that he should be getting. I I, I do think he's a problem. Um, the bigger problem is Edward Wood or who and whoever is in charge of recruitment or football strategy in, in that team and in that club. Um they just don't seem to sort of course up with, catch up with the times. You know what I mean? They don't have a director of football or someone who's a head of recruitment who, or, or maybe they did that we don't know about us, but they're not doing their job properly. Mm. And there, there doesn't seem to be a strategy. The Cavani signs come out of nowhere. Um, why they didn't do that earlier in the summer because he's been free. He's been, you know, he's been out of contract. It's a panic and, buy, isn't it? It, it, it? it screams that. It does scream that. And obviously we'll see whether that bears truth. But, I think a lot of things have been said about Woodward and, and anything else, so I won't go much more into that. The thing is, with Silkshire, I think we are now starting to see that he is just a coach who got Cardiff relegated. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what they hired. Um, obviously, he comes in to do a temporary job and, and sort of, you know, get stabilised a bit at the end of, of, of that season where he comes in in December, doesn't he, when Mourinho gets sacked. Um, he probably didn't expect him to do as well as he did and they felt like they owed him a job and, and they bought into the sense of mentality of you know, their old player, their old hero who won the Champions League coming in and, um, and managing the club. But I think that's all, he was always going to have his limitations. He might have developed as a coach. He might have had potential, and this is finally his chance to show it. I don't. I think that's proven that he hasn't got that. He hasn't got the ability to to manage Manchester United. I don't think, and that's what we are starting to say. Um, I, I just then looks like there's a plan with United apart from counter attacking teams, and when they do counter attack teams, they are brilliant to watch and fair play to them and. and the Fernandez signing is probably something that recruitment the team does as a credit for because he, he has been brilliant. Um, his brilliant penalties as well, fantastic. Mm. But I just think we are now starting to see the limitations of Solskjaer, and I, I just I just don't fear them as much. Man United ruined my childhood as a local <laughs> supporter because they were just tell brilliant. me about it, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can <laughs> just, compare notes on that one if you want. Yeah. <laughs> I will do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> um, Old Trafford was just a place that I just, just never wanted to go to. Never wanted to play your, your football there. Right now, the the that fear factor is just gone, and I just don't fear them as being a team that's going to challenge Liverpool for the title or challenge Man City for the title. I don't actually see them as being the team that's best of the rest to do that either. You know, Chelsea and, and you know maybe let's see what Arteta's or Arsenal. They could be the next bunch from that. I just yeah. I, I but until they get a new coach in United, I don't think they're going to progress to where they want to be. Yeah, I mean it's it seems a soul shot. I mean he's not obviously not the only United manager to have struggled in the post Ferguson era, but he's just clearly not good enough, and he never will be. And if they've not sacked him yet, I don't know what what would take. Uh, what it would take for them to do so. It seems with with Solskjaer that whenever he's sort of on the verge of like 
getting the sack potentially or, or, or this serious talk about it, it'll get a good result and it gives him a bit yeah. of a stay of execution. Uh, you know, same with them finishing third at the end of last season. If they'd probably finished outside the top four, they probably would have got rid of him this summer. I, I think it might be well to say, right? I think if my United v Spurs was perhaps the last game on Super Sunday and Liverpool Villa was played on Monday night and or, or the result wasn't as mad as it was, I, I think... It possibly could have been sacked by now, <laughs> yeah. or or at least the questions would have been asked more than they were. It, it might not it space it's kind of been forgotten about because of what happened at Villa Park, and mm. so so the attention has been sort of diverted from him. But because losing six one at home, I, I don't know Ferguson did it. But that's fine, it was Ferguson. <laughs> but yeah. that that really should have been the, the death knell. Yeah, why do you think, Matt, that they're so bad at transfers? United, you know, they've they've gone out. You know, we said that they've got Cavani, a bit of a panic buy, but they wanted Sancho, they wanted a winger all summer. They haven't got one. Um, they need a centre back. It's cr- they're crying out for a new centre back. They haven't got one. All right, they signed Alex Tellers. That's that's quite a good buy. Um, but why are they so bad at this? Um, maybe it has something to do with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Mm. I'm, I'm just talking about people talk about a, a manager's pull. And you can't underestimate it. The amount of signings who say, I came here because of Lampard. I mean, for God's sakes, Lampard's two and a bit years into a managerial career and he's managed to attract one of the best German prospects in the world in Kai Havertz. Right, in Timo Werner as well. Um, You know, Ziyech as well. He talks, I want to play under Lampard. Or Jose Mourinho is the guy. I want to play under him. Guardiola, Klopp. And I just don't think that kind of... um, that massive pull is there when it comes to Solskjaer. I don't. If you were, if you were to sit in a transfer room, imagine you know you're signing for United and Solskjaer comes in and give you his plan. I'm not sure I'd believe what he's saying. I can't think <laughs> of, I can't think of anything. And I said this. I said this when Mourinho was appointed at Spurs. If any player comes to Tottenham and says, "Why should I join your club?" Mourinho walks in, balls out. Premier League winners' trophy uh, medals around his neck, the Champions League trophy in one hand, La Liga in the other. Sits him down on the table with his with his balls out and says, "This is why." <laughs> right, and the players say, "Oh, you know what? Actually, that's yeah, a pretty good track record." To be fair, mate, I'll join your club. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, what's well, the Amazon Prime behind the scenes? I would have loved to see this. You know, <laughs> yeah. but, but but you know what I mean? I I, I can only imagine um, what Guardiola sold to Ferran Torres. Oh, I bet he gave him this whole presentation with nice little drawings and PowerPoint, you know, slides and mm. some cool animations. <laughs> and it was this whole this whole spiel about how he's going to develop, you know, into the next player under Guardiola. And I bet he believed it. I just don't know what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to tell a prospective player in the meeting when he calls him up. It, what's he going to say? What's he going to point to as a reference point? <laughs> Do you remember 1999 Champions League final? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of like walking into a job interview without a CV. <laughs> yeah. He just he hasn't really got a relevant point. He hasn't got he hasn't got anything which can sell a player. And I think on top of this, United they may be punching above their weight. I think when it comes to the likes of Jaden Sancho, I just think Yes, you can tug at the heartstrings of these players who grew up in our generation watching, you know, glory, glory, Man United and Alex Ferguson and Cristiano Ronaldo. There's only so long that you can play on history because the players who are coming in have to want to be involved in the future. 
You can't just come in and say, I played for Man United and they won all these trophies in the 90s without me, but they still won them. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got players who want to be part of the future. And I think they maybe need to be a bit more realistic with their signing, um, with, with a few of their signings. You know, going head-to-head with Dortmund over £120 million. <sighs> I know Sanchez said he wants to join United one season on. And you know, for all intents and purposes, it looks like they could be out of the Champions League. Then what? Then what are you going to sell Sancho on? You're going to mm. sell him on the on the promise of travelling to Bulgaria with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on a Thursday night. <laughs> I'm quite sure that's going to be at the top of Sancho's list. And it's sorry to our Bulgarian listeners, that wasn't meant offensive. Um, <laughs> Bulgaria is lovely, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, lovely place for a holiday, but yeah, you know what I mean. It's I, I feel like they punched above their weight, and if they'd started with a few more sensible ones, um, they could have maybe had a better a better window. You know, there was talk that they spoke to Tiago as well. I don't know. If you're Tiago and you listen to two phone calls, one from Klopp, one from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, it's a bit of an easy decision, yeah, yeah. you know, regardless of the money. So I, I just think they maybe they need to have more of a pull than their manager and maybe need to be a bit more realistic with transfers. Yeah. It says it all really, that the pull of Manchester United alone doesn't seem to be enough anymore. Or, or mm. But yeah, it's, uh, you know... I think a director of football would solve so many problems for them. Why they haven't gone out and got one yet, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, before the weekend, I thought the most interesting game was going to be Manchester City's trip to Elland Road. Uh, Joel, do you think it was a good game or match lacking in quality from both sides or a bit of both? I thought it was a fantastic game. I really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, and, I, and, you know, it's, it's wild what happened afterwards that we're, it's third down the roster. I'm speaking about games <laughs> the weekend, but I, I thought it was great. And I know it, it, was, it felt proper end-to-end in terms of and, and maybe that says a lot about the quality of the midfields and, and uh, in, in, in that in the teams on, on show because they didn't exist they weren't there they weren't there on Saturday nights it was just bam City were, City were great for the first 20 minutes by the way mm. City were absolutely amazing and to be honest probably should have taken the game away from Leeds but fair play to, to Bielsa and, and his staff for getting the team you know, back on back on track and for, for the players to turn it around because I think Leeds did not look one bit like a new promoted team at all. They they looked like they've been in the Premier League for years and I guess they spent a lot of money and, and brought in quality players. So, you know, maybe that they should look like that. Like R- Rodrigo Moreno comes on and, and you know, that's not the player I've seen at Valencia over the last yeah. two seasons. Like he seems to have got his legs back, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um and he, he was great. He was fantastic. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, it's a lot of play, people were talking about it on Twitter on on Saturday night, and you know, reveling in the game and how much they enjoyed it. And then it's just sort of fallen by the wayside. But <laughs> I, it was just two two coaches who obviously got a great respect for each other, and you know, Bielsa's obviously influenced Guardiola and in, in what he's done. And I just think we saw the best of both managers, both both coaches there, and you know. Oh, arguably, maybe the draw was the, the right result and a fair result because no one really deserved to lose, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, City started really well. They did tail off pretty badly and Leeds came more and more into the game, you know, even during the first half. Um, and it kind of dawned on me afterwards that I, I think a team that's capable of winning the league this season would have won that match. Um, you know, City would have gone and got a second, third goal in that in that opening period. But do you know what? I, th- I think I'm okay with the idea that City won't win the league this season. I think I really am. I feel like they're in the middle of a rebuild. It's probably going to be Guardiola's last season at the club. And that's kind of fine. I think I, 
I honestly think I'm all right with it. Um, do, do, do you think he's going to be in charge of the rebuild and he's not going to you know, lead City into like City 2.0? I don't it, think... I think he's had enough. I get the feeling yeah, that he's yeah, sort yeah. of had enough and, and this season will... He sort of said pre-season that he, he wants to feel like he's he earn, he'll, he'll earn a new contract this season and the way it's looking, that isn't really going to be the case and I think that's sort of his... He's using his sort of get-out clause already as saying, well, I don't think you know where, where I want us to be so I'm going to leave... But I was going to ask you, Matt, like, do you think that City, uh, you know, are they allowed to have a transitionary season or do they simply have to be looking to win the league every single year with the money they've spent? Uh, yeah, you'd probably say so. I mean, the, just the, the quality they've got, the depth of the score, the money they spend, that they've got one of the best managers in the world. It's always going to be seen as a bit of a failure to not win the league each season, mm. which it kind of sucks, I guess, because, <laughs> you know, you want to be able to understand and you know as you have as a fan clearly you want to be able to understand that there's going to be a transition season that maybe you can't win it every year that maybe you're going to be a bit worse off this year but in a few years some of your players are going to be better for the experience it's you know if a, as a football fan if you accept accept that success comes in peaks and troughs and you're absolutely fine with it mm. but yeah considering their status in the game like you said they they don't look like a team is going to you know comfortably win the league after that performance and I think the only sort of positive for the rest of the league is it makes everything a bit more exciting I think we're open mm-hmm. for a, a very different season and you know anything can sort of happen but I guess when you set the bar so high yeah mm. I mean, <laughs> you're either going to meet expectations or fail there is no win <laughs> I think my I mean I would if if Guardiola leaves at the end of the season and City haven't won the league but they've at least made a bit of progress on last season that you know they're looking a bit better they're pointing in the right direction and they've got everything in place for the next guy to take over yeah I, th- I think I'll be alright with that but what, what does worry me a little bit is that we might be wasting Kevin De Bruyne's best years mm. and that he might look back on his time at City and go well I won a couple of league titles but I didn't win the Champions League and we tailed off pretty badly after those couple of league titles um, but other than that I've, I think I've sort of already lowered my expectations for the season and I'm, I'm, I'm I'm very comfortable with it all. <laughs> um, and of course, it was pretty uh, obviously going to happen after all the complaints about the handball law on last week's <laughs> podcast. They tweet the rule during the week. There was none of that nonsense this weekend, but there was a handball from a Leeds player in this game that probably would have been a penalty last weekend. But I suppose I'm not allowed to complain about that now, am I? I don't think so. <laughs> it looked like a penalty, to be fair. I mean, I, I was surprised I wasn't given, but I think Dale Johnson of ESPN did come out, the VAR man on Twitter did come out and say that it, in the rule, when the player slides, it's not a penalty. Oh. It's his hand, but... There's um, always a caveat when it comes to City. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. I love that, I love that J- Jose came out and said, if anyone can com- can't complain about VAR, it's Man United. Yeah, that, that was a victory for the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the there was a bit of uh, mind games going on between Solskjaer and Jose in this sort of oh, build up to the game, God. wasn't there? And, and and Jose again, he's still his life in the old dog yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they seen the biggest shock of the weekend was going to take place at the King Power Stadium on Sunday, where Leicester were beaten three 0 by West Ham. Uh, Matt, I'll ask you the same question I asked you on last week's podcast: Brendan Rodgers, fraud or genius? <laughs> well, it's one week later, and they've lost, so fraud. Fraud. Yeah, <laughs> Brendan. Fraud Brendan Fraudgers. <laughs> <laughs> this this is it this is literally the conversation we had last week yeah but it's just one week brilliance you win 5-2 at City and he's a genius and then you go and lose and honestly you go and lose to a West Ham side who I think are looking a lot better than I thought mm. especially in mm. previous seasons um, 
when they sort of they promise a lot in the transfer window, then make some good signings on paper, and then it all sort of falls apart. Um, I thought they looked really, really good, and again, they seemed to put this stranglehold on the game. Right, with two 0 up at half time, playing the way they play, and then nothing else really happened. You know, the, the, the crowd weren't there to g Leicester up. They sort of went out there, and it was the same. And there was no sort of switch of energy, switch of vibe within the team. And as I say, the, the final goal was a lovely finish and it kind of just summed up everything about Leicester's day. I think, like Joel said earlier, these supposed off days, right? And we had three in one day on Sunday. And if you include Manchester City, these off days are going to be far more frequent this mm. season and it won't be just a blip in the road. Um, but I also think, I want to... Just give a shout out to the teams that are actually winning these games, like yeah. Spurs, like Villa, like West Ham. Everyone says that, oh, you know, this defence is poor, and Maguire this, and Gomez that. You know, give some credit to the smaller teams who are playing a good brand of football. It's not like, you know, you've got one or two teams in the league who are so superior footballing-wise that they can smash it. You know, you've got players, coaches, and teams in the lower reaches of the table who are able to put together a result and a run of form and I think you know I'm all for it for the for the sake of the league and yeah I thought West Ham were brilliant to be honest yeah well we joked on last week's podcast about West Ham being better with David Moyes working from home do you think there could actually be something in this Joel like could watching on TV give managers like a better perspective on the game than uh, being on the touchline possibly you know what maybe maybe they should like sort of um Put some cameras around at Moise's house and see how he sort of approaches it and you know, what he's <laughs> yeah, watching. Yeah, it'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? Yeah, I guess he's got access to different angles that he obviously wouldn't have. You know, when, when he's he's on the pitch, there could literally be something that you'll definitely be able to see positional sense better and how the team's shape is because obviously you'll <laughs> be seeing it from a from a bit high point of view. Either that, that, or they ring you up and say, "David, uh, what, what are we going to do?" He's like, "I don't know, my Wi-Fi's gone down. <laughs> I can't see the game." It's <laughs> <laughs> still one nil. Yeah. Um, have, have you got a stream? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think. Go on, Matt. Sorry, sorry. Go on, Joel. No, you, you, go ahead. One uh, of you. I, I was going to say. Do you, do, you, do you remember Big Sam used to do that? He used to sit up in the stand and have Sammy Lee down on exactly, the exactly. Yeah, so he yeah. Could get a better view. There's really something in it, you know, in terms of recording. I mean, most most teams will have all this game data recorded anyway, but there might be something in it from a different angle. Just maybe not sat in his pyjamas playing football manager. I, I just think there's also just not having Moise staring at you on the touchline is the biggest factor. <laughs> it's kind of like when you, when you go out and you have that one mate who gets a bit too drunk a bit too quickly and it, you get maybe a bit aggressive when he's drunk. But once he's gone, everyone has a fantastic night because <laughs> you know, it's sort of off the leash a bit. I, I think it's that. No, no one's got Moise staring down the neck anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's the drunk aggressor. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Yes. Yeah. Allegedly. But we'll uh, definitely say that. Uh, yeah, great performance from Jared Bowen again in this game um, Pablo Fornals also worked his socks off and there was an, another goal from Mikel Antonio who's a player I really love I don't know if you saw his match of the day interview uh, after the game it really made me laugh but he, they asked him like uh, they said oh what are you doing over the international break now and he's like oh I don't know really I've not really thought about it they were like oh I suppose you can't really uh, you know go to the pub with the pubs closing early and he went yeah but there's a pub in my house <laughs> <laughs> I just I thought a footballer genuinely made me laugh out loud it's, it, it was a weird feeling to be honest yeah. what a season he's honest <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, one of the games that went under the radar a bit on Sunday was Arsenal's 2-1 win over Sheffield United. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Sheffield United had John Egan sent off for a shirt took against Aston Villa. So why wasn't David Luiz sent off for almost the exact same foul in this game, Joel? What's Dale Johnson got to say about that one? Hey, you'll have to ask Dale. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a red as well. Yeah, I'm really surprised it wasn't given. It, it just sort of, you know, you get that feeling that a defender's made a foul or done something and, and, and you have that one second burst of energy where you're like, oh, it's going to be a red. It was just so surprising to see that, you know, that that wasn't happening. But God knows, we all claim we all want consistency, don't we? And I guess we got it with the handballs last weekend and then we complained about having consistency and. Now we don't have David Luiz getting sent off with pretty much the same foul, wasn't it? And I can see why Chris Wilder was absolutely human. But the I know we're still going to speak about it now, but the the Sander Beige one was worse. Yeah, <laughs> how did he not get sent for that? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's just so frustrating that this even this even in the age of VAR, this there's, there's still so much inconsistency. I just. That is the one thing that I thought it would bring to the game, yeah. if nothing else. But yeah, let's not talk about referees too much this week anyway, because <laughs> I got my back up about it too much last week and uh, they don't deserve our, our time. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about Arsenal, who were pretty pedestrian uh, for much of this game. I've seen uh, Mikel Arteta described as the Spanish George Graham. Do you think that's fair, Matt? Is, it, is, is his football a bit dull? Brutal. Uh I'm not so sure it's a bit dull. I'm just not sure they've got the quality of player just yet. I think Arsenal will come come good. They'll be a lot better. Um, they've definitely got some exciting players. Um, and I just think they're just kind of getting into the system. They seem to be a little bit one-dimensional in certain cases. Um, and I think that's why they were crying out for someone like Hussamawa to be an actual creative force in the middle of the park. Um, well, they've got Thomas Partey now. Do you think he'll be the, the yeah, man? that's the thing. They've got party not necessarily creative, but certainly a phenomenal central midfielder. I think that is a, an unbelievable deal for them, um, for what he could do for both the defence and the attack. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, for, for me, Arteta seems it might be a little bit boring from the outside, right? But he's playing to the strength of his team. If he doesn't have an exciting creative team or is full of those players, then why would he try and play like that? That's managerial suicide. Mm. You know, if if he knows that. He's got a few defensive issues. You might have to put an extra man at the back and go three or five man in defence. If he knows that he's got exceptionally quick forwards, which he does, and he might have to play a bit on the counter, then he's going to do it. I think there should be no shame when you're kind of starting out to really bring the best out of your squad and kind of add to it as he goes on. He's made a nice addition with party. You know, as soon as Ceballos finds his form, he'll have another nice addition there. So I think... It, it's it's it, it, he is the definition, and also the definition of a working progress. Where if you expect him to come in and say, "Oh, he's Spanish. He learned from Guardiola. We're expecting Tiki Taka from minute go," you know, it's a bit unrealistic. Yeah, um, and still no points for Sheffield United, Joel. But they they have at least now scored a goal. Do you think Ryan Bruce is going to be enough to pull them out of the mire? We'll have to see. The jury will be out on for a long time. You know, it's. Bruce has obviously got potential and he was highly rated at Liverpool um, you know, by the, by the coaching staff there and I definitely wanted to work out for him at Anfield but you know he's not played a, a minute a single minute of Premier League football at senior level so he played half a season senior football and championship and obviously did very well it's a big risk it's a big gamble uh, we'll have to see what it will pull off and well he will get chances because Sheffield United do create chances. Um, they do have the wing backs who can put you know break balls in, uh, so he shouldn't be starved of that. And uh, we'll just have to see. And you know, I hope it works out for him. But 
who knows? Yeah, decent uh, money that Liverpool got from there. Was it 23 million in the end? 23 million for that. He's not yeah. playing Premier League football. You take it. That's, exactly. That's, how has that happened? How has that happened? It's insane. <laughs> uh, well, I'd like to officially <laughs> retract my prediction that Hamas Rodriguez will be the flop of the season. Uh, <laughs> it, it was a very stupid thing to say. I apologise unreservedly. <laughs> um, Everton aren't actually going to challenge for the title this year, are they, Matt? This is a bit weird. It's getting a bit weird now, isn't it? Well, we've talked about how weird the season's going to be. So yeah. I, like you, are not going to make a silly prediction. <laughs> <laughs> the history would say no. Um, they, they've got a very good team. Um, I think they've got a good team, but not a good squad. And I think that's something that may end up bringing them down uh, with one or two injuries to the team. But having said that, I've really enjoyed the way that they've played. It's not that they've been winning and, you know, you say, oh, you've had a few good performances. It seems to be they do have a set way of playing. They are playing to their strength. If Dominic Cavalier can keep up this form, there's no reason why they can't challenge top four. We're seeing the best of Hammers, and there's not really there's not really much else to come. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, they're, they're playing with this player or they're playing without this player or he's going to have a headache when so-and-so's back in the squad. This is it. He set up his best team. His best team are doing what they should do on the pitch and producing the goods. And I think it's a good sign for Everton going forwards um, that they seem to have such a settled eleven already, um, or eleven or twelve. You know, with the, with the odd switch here and there. I just worry that their strength maybe isn't in the depth of their squad, and that might harden them the further they kind of go into competition. Of course, with no Europe. Um, they won't be facing as many competitions as the rest of the guys at the top, which could play in their favour. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't see no reason why they can't have a really good season, one of their best in years, and they seem to be finally delivering on some of the promise that their signings are. Um, their signings have um, promised in the last few seasons. I don't know. I think I think a title challenge is a bit much. I think it'll be a bit too much for Joel, to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean... I, I- I watched the game against uh, Brighton. They won four two on Saturday, and I, I thought even players like Alex Awobi and Gilfie Sigerson did their bit. I thought I think they've got fairly decent strength in depth actually, and maybe it's a reaction to the Liverpool result on Sunday. But I'm getting sort of Leicester under Ranieri vibes from Everton. I don't know. I've <laughs> I mean, obviously Pickford's still a big worry for them. They got Robin Olsen on yeah. deadline day. Do you think he's going to be enough to keep Pickford on his toes, Matt? Um. I think so, yeah. I think Pickford definitely is, is a sore point. I mean, I can't watch highlights without seeing him mess up mm. or without seeing him looking smaller and smaller every time we look at the goal frame. He just <laughs> seems to be so shot of confidence. And yeah, I mean, uh, like you said, with the depth, the Wobin Six and did okay. I just don't think they're anywhere near as good as the first teamers that they've got. Um, otherwise, those first teamers wouldn't have needed to be brought in. You wouldn't need to bring in Decore, Allen, or Rodriguez if the likes of a Wobi. Sigurdsson, um, Tom Davis, if they were good enough in the first place. But uh, yeah, I think Olsen's a good signing, certainly better than Pickford, certainly a lot taller than Pickford. <laughs> That's a start, isn't it? Yeah. How long are his arms? <laughs> <laughs> That's a start. I think that was the medical, just calculate. Take measure, yeah. And, yeah, you're good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Joel, have you ever been as nervous for a Merseyside derby as, as you are for the one coming up after the international break? No. Um, no, <laughs> it's hard to get really concerned, but it, you know it is only four games, so let's see. But they deserve a lot of credit, and I, you know, I guess that they've got you know one of the best coaches in the world, or and it has been in Ancelotti there. So you know, they're all. <laughs> I guess they were always going to be comfortable. <laughs> and no, I, I do. 
obviously Liverpool losing the game that they've done now puts a lot of pressure on that game and if Everson will be absolutely bouncing. Mm. They will smell blood now as well. Um but you know, if, if the worst thing about it is the fans aren't there because the, you know the fans would make them nervous. And uh, at some point in, in the game, even if Everton win them one nil, let's say seventy minutes in, Everton would have realised and remembered that they are Everton, and Liverpool would remember they were Liverpool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Liverpool would have, would have pulled it back and probably won the game. But <laughs> now they're going to have the fans making them nervous. So it's um, we'll, we'll see. It's going to be a true test to see how far Everton become if they can you know, overcome the champions of England. But. Mm-hmm. Um, We'll have to say I'm not looking forward to it. I can't wait for that game. Yeah, <laughs> but if Liverpool, if Everton don't win, it, uh, Liverpool would have gone a decade unbeaten against uh, against Everton, which mm. is just I'm not wow. sure there's a Premier League record like that. So wow. that's what we're all here. I'm not asked about the league this season. I just want that. <laughs> Uh, well, Chelsea got back to winning ways with a 4-0 victory over Crystal Palace on Saturday. I haven't been able to get the image of Roy Hodgson trying to take the knee out of my head all weekend. That was uh, I felt very sorry for him in that moment, actually. Um, ben Chilwell scored his first goal for Chelsea in this game. He was talking recently about wanting to emulate Ashley Cole. Do you think he's got what it takes, Matt? Ooh, those are some big boots to fill. I mean, Cole was, you know, the best left-back England have ever produced. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if Ben Chill was up to that. I think it's a good signing. I think he'll fit to the Chelsea side well and certainly do a better job than like Sir Alonso and Emerson are. But yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure it's up to Ashley Cole. Level. That's insane. I mean, Ashley Cole won, what was it, eight FA Cups or something? Seven FA Cups? Something like that, yeah, yeah. Won, won a serious amount in his time and also was just such a phenomenally consistent fullback from the ages of 18 to 34, whenever it was. Um yeah, this that that would take some doing. I don't even think Chilwell's got the time to be able to put that one right. But I'm not so sure that's necessarily the role that they need him for. I mean, he's good enough for this Chelsea squad at the minute, so maybe maybe just focus on that for now. Mm. Uh, there's plenty of positives to take from this game for Chelsea, but uh, Timo Werner doesn't look quite look like he's settled just yet, Joel. Do you think that's something to be concerned about, or is it just going to take a bit of time? I, I think it'll take time. I, I think it'll take time for him to get used to the Premier League for one, uh, where he'll come up against a lot more low block defensive teams that he did in Germany. Um, there are a few teams in, in the Bundesliga who do play like Crystal Palace do or like Burnley do, but I don't think they, there'll be as many. There are as many in the Bundesliga, so it's and he did adapt his game to to deal with that last season. I think Julian Nagelsmann had, had trained him really well and had taught him how to pick up the ball in, in deep positions and affect his, the game from there. But he's still Werner's at his best when he's got space to run in behind. And I don't think that's going to be afforded to him as as much or as regularly mm-hmm. here. It'll t- it'll take time. He's also he's probably not playing with the attacking unit that he's going to be playing with all season. Yeah, because uh, obviously you know he's still got. Ziak um, and Christian Pulisic to come back in, uh, and you imagine that Werner's just going to play you know as an outright nine when that happens, and you know, you maybe see Havertz move move further back into number ten, and, and and from so on. And but so he's he's kind of in a way kind of playing out of position at the moment, um, or, or at least not directly up front. And I just I just don't think Lampard's worked out how to use him properly. We'll, we'll we'll see about that. I, I don't think there's anything to be concerned about just yet. The players just sometimes take time to to adapt to a new country, but he's a, he's a phenomenal striker, and I think he'll he'll prove his business over time. Mm. By the way, one of the penalties that Chelsea got in this game was a great argument for my twelve yard box idea. 
Just saying. Just just <laughs> mention that one again, just to keep it fresh in people's minds. You know, it's, I it's think something. <laughs> I, I definitely, yeah. Uh, now I've had some pretty wild Saturday nights in my time, but the one where I stayed in to watch Newcastle play Burnley will not go down as one of them. <laughs> I did enjoy uh, Alan Sat Maximan's goal in this game, though. Um, I think Newcastle have done really well to keep hold of him this summer, haven't they, Matt? Uh, yeah, I think they've done well to keep hold of him, but I also think that um, I'm not quite sure there was the demand for another winger. I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, <coughs> Manchester United. I, yeah, <laughs> uh, aside from United, I'm not so sure there were too many teams who were in the market for a massive, uh, for a big winger, especially knowing that from another Premier League side, he would cost a lot of money because of what he means to Newcastle. Um, I don't really think there was too much interest in him. But yeah, he's phenomenal. He, for me, has got all the tools to be a top, top player in the Premier League. The way he he takes on the man, the way he does it again and again and again, and the defender must think, oh, for God's sakes, please, <laughs> just stop running me. And he does it every time and he goes in all sorts of directions. Um, and I think he's one of those who, oddly enough, needs to be in a good team for his his kind of his effort to be vindicated. You know what I mean? There's always, there's like a, um, there was a really bizarre stat about Kevin De Bruyne having a brilliant season last season. How many assists he would have got if City had taken more chances? Yeah. And I know there's lots of ifs and buts, but, and I don't want to be too disrespectful to Newcastle because Wilson's looked like a good sign in this season. But imagine if you had a better striker on the end of all his hard work and not John mm-hmm. Linton. You know, suddenly, suddenly, Sir Maximan's posting double figures for assists, right? His pass completion goes up and he looks like a much more well-rounded player. So I think it's always difficult to judge because he's such a poor team. Um, but the, the better Newcastle get, the more you'll see out of him, I reckon. Yeah. Be a key part of it. How do you rate Newcastle's transfer business overall then, Joel? Matt mentioned Callum Wilson there. He got two goals in this game. But if he gets injured, they seem a bit screwed to me. Quite, yeah. Well, yeah. But I guess playing your teams, you lose the first striker, then the number one striker, they, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll be buggered. But, um... Man City have lost both of theirs and they're doing okay. I'm just, just throwing that out there. <laughs> um, I haven't won two weeks, we'll see. Um, didn't, want, didn't want to. <laughs> didn't want to win. Yeah. Not interested in winning. I, I, Newcastle, I think they've had, you know what, probably one of the best transfer windows um, out of the Premier League. Um, I think Ryan Frakes is a, a very solid sign. He's taking time to get fit, but... You know, this is a guy who was linked with you know the likes of Arsenal and, and Liverpool a couple of seasons ago, and because because the assist he provides, um, he was doing serious numbers. I think Jamel Lewis, you know, Liverpool were linked with him as well this summer, and I was I was getting really excited about the idea of him coming in because I think he's got a high ceiling. Um, he's got a big house. No, he, um, he, <laughs> so he could be a very, very solid left back. Um, definitely going forward, anyway. And then obviously onto onto Callum Wilson. He, he's he scored goals in the Premier League. He's proven that with Bournemouth that he's got you know, he, he can do the business at this level. Injuries are always held him back, but um, you know, he's had young call ups and that kind of thing. So he's. I think he's going to love being the main guy in, in, up front for Newcastle, and, and everyone's hopes being on him. He would love, I don't know, everyone would, but to have the fans back in the stadium with him now, he'd, he'd adore being their main guy, being the striker. And I think he'd have a great relationship with the, the Geordie faithful. But I, I think, you know what? Fair play to Newcastle. They've done some really good business this summer. And, 
you know, maybe the criticism of Ashley has died down a little bit right now. Mm. Obviously, that will rear back up eventually. But <laughs> yeah. right, you know, right now, you know, it's looking promising here. I see. Yeah. All I'll say about those high ceilings is they're a bugger to heat in the winter. <laughs> So, <laughs> um, so I know we said we wouldn't read too much into early season four, but we can pretty much kiss goodbye to Fulham and West Brom already, can't we, Matt? Yeah, goodbye. Crap, just, aren't I they? It, it, they're crap, and it annoys me how they have not learned as a football club. I can't even remember if I ranted on about this last week, but mm. I did in a few videos on the YouTube channel. <laughs> I just, year after year, they go down... They're good enough to get promoted and they come mm. back up and they invest poorly, right? Why is Jake Livermore still captain at West Brom? <laughs> Why have they still got these shocking defenders? Why is Sam Johnston in goal? <laughs> I mean, they're just, when you realise they're just not good enough to keep them in the Premier League and it's no wonder they have such diabolical seasons. The same thing at Fulham, what's the name? Kamara's up front. Kearney's still in the midfield. Mm. Um I think Dennis Adoy is still there. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're just not learning. They're just not learning every time they go down and come back up. And for me, there's one or two bright sparks. Um, you know, I think that Pereira at West Brom looks a decent player yeah. um, for mm. sure. And I know he had a massive impact last year in, uh, in the championship. They went out and who did they sign recently? They signed a bloke that had on loan last summer in the championship from sporting, I believe. Um, you know, for the just, I know they've bought in Anderson um, from Leon on the deadline day, who I think is good. I think Loftus Cheek is a very good player and will be key mm. for Fulham. But I think this speaks volumes that when you when you come up and there's something on transfer deadline day, you think, God, you know, actually, we should probably sign someone who's played in the Premier League before. Or we should sign someone who's actually got Premier League quality. It's too late. Yeah, You should be planning this from the second you know you're going to be promoted, which is... Well, obviously, the season was a bit late, but normally a few months before the Premier League starts, you should start planning for the Premier League. And if they go down again and then they come up again in another two years, they've got to do something different. Aston Villa are doing it and all credit to them. Um, Wolves have done something different after being promoted. But if you're Fulham and you're West Brom, you're just thinking you're there for the numbers. You take the 100 million for finishing 20th and 19th. You build a squad that's far too good for the championship. You smash the championship again, and then you're in the same position 12 months later. I just, I'd be, I'd be annoyed if I was a fan of either side. Yeah, Fulham, I'm not, and I'm still annoyed. <laughs> yeah, Fulham's transfer business has baffled me a little bit as well. They bought, they, they seem to have bought a lot of players, or, or you know, brought in some loans, but with no kind of real vision into how they mm. fit into the team. It just like. It seems like the only thing they've learned from last time is not to waste too much money this time. Let's just, we'll get a load of players in, but let's just get them on the cheap or on loans or whatever. You know, Adam Ola Luckman's, I think he's a decent sign in. Um, they've got okay, Tosin. That's a good one, to be fair. Tosin Adarabio from City. But the, the good young players, but are they the players you need for a relegation battle? I'm not sure they are, to be honest. And that's Scott it. Parker. Where's their, where's their Grealish? You know, yeah. The, I mean, it's not easy to get a Grealish, obviously. It's not easy. It's not no. an exact, exact sciences thing, but I just feel like they're, they're making the same mistakes as last time. But uh, yeah. anyway, that's uh, all from this week's episode of the One Football Premier League Weekend Review podcast. Thank you to Matt and Joel for joining me, and thank you to everyone for listening. It was a bit of a long one this week. The good news is that Ian McCourt will be back later in the week with the Euro podcast, but the bad news is there'll be no Premier League podcast next week because it's the international break. Uh, so we'll be back on Monday, the 19th of October. And in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with the show you can email us on podcast at onefootball.com or you can tweet us at onefootball.com